All right. So hymn 581. It's a hymn for the month, 581. Stanzas 1, 11, and 12. Ironically, singing the hymn about the Ten Commandments and skipping all the stanzas that are the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Yes, yes. Isn't that fun? Okay, five, pardon me. One, eleven, and twelve. These are the holy ten commands God gave to us by Moses' hands When high on Sinai's mount he stood Receiving them for our good, have mercy, Lord. You have this law to see therein, that you have not been free from sin, but also that you clearly see how pure toward God life should be. Have mercy, Lord. Our works cannot salvation gain. They merit only endless pain. Forgive us, Lord, to Christ we flee, who pleads for us endlessly. Have mercy, Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O God, the giver of all that is good, by your holy inspiration grant that we may think those things that are right and by your merciful guiding accomplish them. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. And of course, if you learned anything from Mel Brooks, as I have, really, there were 15 commandments. <laughs> okay, let's look at the congregation at prayer. James 5.16a is the verse for this week. Let's speak that together. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confess your sins to each other, to one another. That's, if you think about forgiveness, it happens in two ways, two directions, in the same directions as the Ten Commandments, that you have, uh, like the first table of the law, the direction that goes between you and God, and then you have what would sort of be the second table of the law, which is uh, between you and your neighbor. So when we talk about forgiveness between you and God, that's what we would maybe call absolution, where your sins are actually wiped out in the book of heaven. When we talk about forgiveness between you and your neighbor, it means that you are moving beyond together in your relationship, you and your neighbor moving beyond whatever slight or fault or sin uh, caused the harm or the discomfort or the displeasure or the hatred or the anger, anything like that. So on the one, uh, or for the one, it means repenting and acknowledging, yeah, I, I did that, and confessing it and saying, I'm sorry that I did that to you. And for the other, it means putting away all malice and hatred and grudge-bearing and anything like that and receiving that confession with love and then letting love be the thing that replaces the hate. Uh, I told you last week, we talked a little bit about enemies. Who is your enemy? The person that you hate. So if you do not have any enemies, it means you do not hate. So you replace all of that with love. Confess your sins to each other. Now, uh, there was a, a point in the early church where it, it, they, they shared the peace, and there's kind of a, 
a bastardization of that in the modern church where if you go to visit some churches, there'll be the bulletin thing that says sharing of the peace. And what it is is everybody going, oh, hey, how are you? How's the farm doing this week? Hey, you see your kids? Oh, hey, oh, blah, blah. And then you've got about 10 minutes before things actually start to calm back down in the middle of the service. And that's not really what the sharing of the peace was. What the sharing of the peace used to be was the kiss of peace. So a good way if you don't like, uh, if, you, if you go to a church and you don't like that they share the peace, then you just say, hey, you know, the way this used to be was we, we, everybody would go and kiss each other. Let's start doing that. And then you realize everybody says, never mind, we'll just scrap the whole thing. Take longer to that. It would, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll return church to being an all-day affair. <laughs> so uh, it used to be the kiss of peace that you'd go and you'd kiss your, your neighbor. Why? As a sign that you were reconciled, that there was nothing but love between you, that you were reconciled, that there were no faults, no slights, no grudge bearing, but that you were back to being brothers and sisters all together. And the reason that you did that at the beginning is where it was, like where we have confession and absolution, was so that you didn't go to communion hating your neighbor. So you come, you get together, and you say, yep, you know what, it's been a rough week, but we're here together, and I love you, and I forgive you, and now we're all going to go to get some Jesus together. So confess your sins to one another. Now, even, even beyond the liturgical side of that, it's important that you confess your sins to your brother, to your neighbor, to whoever that you have faulted, that we may live together in peace and harmony and love as one body and not a body divided by all these tiny little, well, he said, well, they said, and the last time I went to church, and that's what churches often devolve into. The other aspect of this is Matthew 18, which is the one everybody likes to talk about, but they all get backwards. Because they say, well, Matthew 18, that guy sinned against me, and I'm waiting for him to come and talk to me about it and repent of his sins. And if he doesn't repent of his sins, well, guess what? Matthew 18 says that if you were sinned against, you're supposed to go tell that person that you feel bad that they sinned against you. Not sit around waiting for them to come and recognize what they have done to you that probably is in your head and they will never recognize apart from you talking to them. So confess your sins to one another, live at peace with one another in righteousness and in the love of God. And do what? Pray for each other. If you love one another, then you must pray for one another. You cannot love people without praying for them. Praying is part of love. And you give your neighbor what you have been given, which is the love of God. And I pray in my prayers for my neighbor that he receive the same things that I have received, divine love and mercy and peace, all in Christ. The other thing is this, can you have an enemy and pray for your enemy at the same time? Pardon, who said yes? You. Well, the answer is no. Because one of those things has to give. If you're praying for them, then they stop being your enemy. And if you refuse to pray for them, they remain your enemy. So the good thing, the good piece of advice, I don't know how you're damned by praying for your neighbor and they, if you pray for them, they cease to be your enemy. And if you refuse to pray for them, they remain your enemy. But they're your enemy because you're making them your enemy. I refuse to let it go. I won't pray for them. You can't hate somebody's guts and pray for that person all at the same time. So when you find yourself hating somebody's guts, the first thing that your pastor will tell you to do is to pray for the person that you hate. Because one of those things is going to have to give. Either you'll stop praying for them, in which case your pastor is going to come to you and say, you better start praying for them again, or you will stop hating them because you are praying for them. 
because prayer is an act of love, and through your prayers you begin to love that person because you begin to see them the way that God sees them. You will for their good, which is not really what you want, but it is what God wants. And when you pray, you begin to draw closer to God, and your will becomes like God's will, and you will the good of that other person, and they stop being your enemy. We can talk more about that when I send the kids back, because I see that this is not satisfactory. Okay. It takes a little while sometimes. Oh, yeah. I'll put the disclaimer here that it's not instantaneous. When I say pray for somebody, I don't mean... Lord Jesus, forgive so-and-so, and then moving on from that. Prayer is a repeated and uh, constant thing. It's not something that happens one time. And I don't know that it's always love for the person that you have something against, but it's love of God that by faith, I mean, this has happened to me with someone. Sure. That by faith, I started praying for them and their family and were good, and then, then you change. God helps you change. Correct. Yep, you're, you're 100% on the right track there. We'll come, we'll come back to that, because I want to make sure that, that, that it's a satisfactory explanation of that concept. So, do all of this so that you may be healed. And this is sort of along that lines, so that you become healed as an individual, confessing to one another, being forgiven and forgiving, being healed as an individual, getting all that rot that is hatred and grudge-bearing out of yourself, cutting it out, and that you be healed as a body, a corporate body, the body of Christ, which cannot exist when there is infighting and grudge-bearing. If you go to a church that's full of cliques, that church is diseased. And that you may be healed in your relationships with one another. Okay? So all of this is good and desirable. Let's speak this again. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. What is the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer? Give us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What does this mean? We pray in this or deny our prayer because of them. We are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them. But we ask that he would give them all to us by grace, for we daily sin much and surely deserve nothing but punishment. So we too will sincerely forgive and gladly do good to those who sin against us. Uh, there's just a, a minor language note here. While we pray this fam uh, familiarly, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The language of the New Testament is not one of trespasses, but one of debts. And I'm not advocating that we change the words of the Lord's Prayer because whatever is the familiar way of praying it, you should just pray it that way. Uh, it's more important that it be familiar to you than that we go and nitpick on every little single point. And there's nothing wrong with trespasses per se, but debtors and debts, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, has a deeper connotation. A trespass just is, you can think of that like a slight. So it's easy, it's easy to look at that and just look at it sort of on a sh in a shallow way, well, whoever slights us. But debts are, uh, that's something else because a debt must be repaid. If somebody owes me a debt, I am owed. I am owed and I have a right to seek it. Uh, like the, the merciful master, he has a right to claim the money that he is owed by right from his servant who's racked up the debt. And there is a responsibility when the debt is, is made that it be paid back, that it be returned in kind. And we are then praying to forgive the debts, whatever the deficit is, whatever that, that chasm is, we want it gone. We'll just erase it. And, you know, that can't happen economically. Things have to go somewhere, but it can happen spiritually. It can't happen with your money. The debt just goes, bloop, oh, look, no, no debt anymore. 
Debt doesn't magically disappear. But with God, spiritually, the debt of sins and between his Christians can just be wiped away because Christ has washed it away. So the call for you is to forgive those who are indebted to you in the same way that your debts, has been, your debts have been forgiven by the Lord, which is the whole point of that parable about the unforgiving servant. He's been forgiven a $10 billion debt and then goes out to the courtyard and shakes his servant down for the 10 bucks that he borrowed for a McDonald's meal the week before. There's a sort of a disparity there. Now, we pray that God would not look at our sins, which is to say that he would get rid of them all the way so there's not even anything to look at, and that he wouldn't deny our prayer because of them, because if we do come and he does look at our sins, then he won't listen to our prayers, he can't interact with us, he cannot draw near, and we cannot draw near to him. Uh, and this is an important fact and I want to emphasize it by asking this question. So what is it then that you deserve from God? What do you deserve? Punishment. Yeah, punishment. See, people say, well, I don't deserve anything. And the fact of the matter is, that's actually wrong. You do deserve something from God. The, the problem is we're conditioned to think that if I say, what do you deserve, that it's something good. What do you deserve for doing all of your chores this week and helping me cut down trees in the backyard. Ah, a crisp $5 bill. You have earned that. You deserve it. See, then that's something good. But deserving can be something bad, too. If you break the law, what do you deserve? The punishment of the law. So in the, in the, the case of our relationship with God, what do you deserve from God? Nothing but punishment. You do deserve something. It's just a bad thing. Punishment. Uh, so we don't want that. We pray for God to erase that, that, we, that our punishment not be given to us because we don't have anything to punish, because he's gotten rid of it all. And we too will, in the same way that we have been forgiven, sincerely forgive, not just lip service, but sincerely wipe it away out of your heart, forgive and gladly do good, not begrudgingly. All right, fine but gladly do good to those who sin against us. Pastor, sometimes the word deserve is putting, put in the context of good things. Yes. You don't immediately think of bad things. You think, well, what do I deserve? Well, really, I don't deserve anything because I haven't been all that good. Yes. It, so you're, you're put, automatically putting it in the context of, let's see, there's good things out there but I'm not sure I qualify. It's like negative numbers. If I say, what is 1 minus 10, you say, oh, it's nothing. But then when you look at your whatever, your, your number, number line, you say, well, actually, it's negatives. So it does go, it does go to the other side of zero. Uh, deserving doesn't stop at zero where you say, well, mm, eh, nothing. I don't, I don't deserve anything. It actually does go into the negatives. Ooh, not only do I not deserve anything good, but I also now have earned things that are bad. Yes. And here's the other thing. We will sincerely forgive and gladly do good to those who sin against us. What does it say about the people who sin against us? It doesn't say anything. Is it a conditional for, I will forgive them as long as they, so I'll, I'll, be happy with them and gladly do good to them as long as they stop, blah, blah, blah. There's nothing in there about them. It's all about you. Because what they do doesn't matter. The question is, what are you to do? And of course, that question is posed to every Christian. But in the context of, what am I really praying in the Lord's Prayer? What should I be doing as a Christian? The answer is, forgive those who sin against you and love them and do good to them, regardless of whether they return the favor. Okay, kids, you can go to Sunday school. This, this verse <coughs> reminded me of what I understand you call a Frankenstein version of the Compline. Oh, okay, yes. Frankenstein Compline. In, in the confession portion, it says, I confess to Almighty God before the whole company of heaven and to be 
Yes. Good. And this, when I first started playing online, uh-huh. this just sort of had like, whoa, what? Yeah, so Compline, if you're not familiar with Compline, Compline is one of the daily offices. The daily offices are those, those prayer offices, and an office in that sense is just a, a little service, a short service. So the daily offices, the prayers that you would pray every day. Compline is the last one. It's in the hymnal. Um, I think it's 253 in the hymnal. And <laughs> I have relatively uncharitably, as Mr. Brown pointed out, referred to the version of Compline that we have in the hymnal as a Frankenstein Compline because it's, it's a little bit of a patchwork. There are some things from the old orders of Compline that they retain and other things that they don't and other things that are brought in from other sources to create the, the version of Compline that is in this book. And I, I'm happy that Compline is in here, I, but I, with many things, I wish that I would be more ha happy if they had just left it alone and, and put it in the way that it has been and not messed around with it. But they didn't ask for my opinion. I was in high school. There's, there's also, as you go on to 257, there's a second one that says, Oh Lord, support us all the day long. That, yes. I think, is something related to Anglican Church? Did that perhaps come out of that? Um, these prayers? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, there's two, there's two things here to, to comment on. So firstly, Compline always begins with confession because you're at the end of the day. And like if you pray Luther's evening prayer, one of the parts of that prayer is uh, what, uh, where you, you pray, forgive me all the sins that I have done this day and graciously keep me this night. So you're to the end of the day and you're acknowledging, well, another day's gone by and I messed it up again. And the difference between that and the confession of Compline is, Compline is a service that's meant to be prayed corporately. So you're supposed to have multiple people praying it all together. So then part of the service is you confessing to God, this direction, I have sinned against you, but then you're also confessing to everybody else with you, and I've let you all down too. And that's where, you know, my, by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault, which is in the Latin is the mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. And they used to beat their breasts when they would do it too, because that was the sign to everybody else that you were repented. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. By my sin, by my own sin, by my own most, or by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. So you're confessing to God, I've let you down. You're confessing to everybody else in the body of Christ, and I have also sinned against all of you. And then, Everybody says, ah, well, the Lord has promised us forgiveness and we forgive you too. And then that's how you end your day. And then you begin your day by saying, well, it's a fresh day and my sins were forgiven last night by everybody around me. We're going to start fresh. We're gonna... So it's this cycle then of Compline being the last thing. Now, yes, there are bits of Anglican, Anglicanism in here too, but that's to be expected actually. Um, if you, if you want to know something, the collects that we pray every day also kind of stem from the Anglican Church too, every, every Sunday's collect. And uh, the chants that we have in the common service setting, page, five, or page 15 in the TLH and page 184 in the LSB, that's actually Anglican. It comes from, from, the, from the Anglicanized uh, side of things in America. So we take that because this is an English-speaking nation, but there's a history of the development of all of that where the Anglican Church actually has given quite a bit to the Lutheran Church, uh, even if she doesn't recognize it or realize it. But yeah, that's, that's good. Actually, one of the prayers that we pray here as part of the funeral liturgy, liturgy is from uh, the Anglican Church too. There's a, there's a lot of good. I mean, there's a lot of good everywhere. So. It's best as Christians if you're just if you if you're not biased. If you if you're just going to if if you're going to be biased, the thing to be biased toward is truth and quality. 
or really to be more Christian about that, we say truth, goodness, and beauty. Be biased about truth, goodness, and beauty. And then whenever you find truth, goodness, and beauty, value it because those are the things that are worth valuing. So if the Anglican church somehow has something that's really good, then you don't say, blah, 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 but it's wrecked because they're Anglican. You say, oh, well, would you look at that? That's a nice thing. And that's okay to say that. I mean, it's not un-Lutheran to acknowledge that other people can have the true, the good, and the beautiful, and the noble as well. Yeah, well, everybody's grumpy. That's the problem. Christians, Christians tend to be grumpy. Uh, we're grumpy with one another. We're grumpy with the world. We're grumpy with the different church bodies. It's just, that's always the temptation for the church. Now, Marla. Okay, I just have a comment. Yes, absolutely. You say so many times, pray for our enemies. Yes. Okay. Pray for your enemies. What and the, so the if, you have, if you have a problem with someone, that's your enemy. Yes. And so you pray for them. And you just said, if you pray for them, they're not your enemy. I don't agree with that. Okay. Why don't you agree with that? Because, like Debbie said, you may still be mad at them. Yes. Okay. I understand that. Uh, everybody, I think everybody here is old enough, maybe not Brian. Or, or, or uh, Anna. Everybody else here, though, is old enough, or maybe you two in the back either. So those four aside, everybody here is old enough where you can think of people that you actually hate. Uh, you can think of people whom, at one point in your life, you wished hell upon. Uh, you can think of the people that stabbed you in the back, that made your life for one reason or another absolutely miserable, or that did it to a different aspect of your life, like somebody who ruined the life of your husband, or somebody who ruined the life of your wife, or somebody who ruined the life of your children. And when you're a parent, your children then, uh, you know, whoever hurts your children hurts you too, so you hate the people that hurt your children. I'm reminding you of all the people that you hate. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, put, a, put him on the list. I forgot about that one. You know, I went to Bible class and Pastor reminded me back in the eighth grade. <laughs> okay, so there's everybody, everybody, when you become an adult, you, re you realize not everybody is your friend. And not everybody has your best interest at heart. And you maybe begin to learn the hard way, because it's the only way to learn this, you begin to learn the hard way how to choose your friends more carefully. And you know, a, a really good example of that is the parent who tries to teach uh, his children how to look for a good spouse. Maybe something he learned from the school of hard knocks himself. And advising his children, perhaps this person is not whom you want to marry. I have personal experience with that in my family. Um, we had a bit of a, uh, a problem with my uncle and somebody he chose to marry, who then ended up uh, kind of destroying his entire life. And, and I remember my grandma listened to my podcast once and she said, well, you, talk, you said everybody has someone that they hate. I don't hate anybody. And all I said was, oh, yeah, what about so-and-so? And she said, oh. <laughs> I forgot that one. Maybe you're right. Okay, so, yes, everybody has an enemy, and uh, everybody has people that they hate. And again, like I said, your enemy is your enemy because you hate them. Being an enemy and being opposition are different things. And they're different things even in the language of the Bible. You can have an enemy who is the person you hate, and you want to fight against, and you want bad things to happen to, or you can have an adversary, an adversary or, or opposition, which is just the person who is standing against you. Now, you can have a neutral position if you have an adversary. I choose not to fight back. Now, that doesn't affect what they're going to do. They might still choose to fight against you, but your choice is that you can fight 
back against them and hate them to the same degree as they hate you, or you cannot. And if you choose to do that, they are your enemy. If you choose not to be, they are your adversary. So when we talk about enemies, that's a you problem. An enemy is a you problem, not a them problem. Why are they your enemy? And, and any time that you think, really, really think about that question, why is so-and-so my enemy? And the answer is always because they did blah, blah, blah. Because of something that they did to you that hurt you or to your children that hurt your children or to your spouse that hurt your spouse or to somebody else in your family, you know, something like that. It always stems from what I think about them because of what they did. Now, the, the because of what they did isn't the thing that matters for the Christian. What matters for the Christian is, but what do you think of them now? Maybe they turned your family into the Gestapo. What do you think about them? Let's go back a little further. Maybe they pretended to be a Christian and they started coming to your secret church at so-and-so's house or in the catacombs under the city and infiltrated. And then the next time you came to church, they went, there they are. And all of the Roman soldiers came and took you away and killed everybody you loved. Or what about... Ah, Rabbi, greetings. What do you think about that person? Judas. That was my reference, yes. Okay. And, and that's me saying, put, what, what about the disciples? Do the disciples look at Judas and say, oh, he, has made, he, he is our enemy? Do the, look, at, look at Peter. He cut, off the, he cut off Malchus's ear. Jesus said, don't do that. Peter had an enemy because Peter made a man his enemy. That's, that's, that's the way that the Old Testament speaks. It's the way the New Testament speaks. It's the way the Didache speaks. An enemy is somebody you make. Which means that if you want somebody not to be your enemy, it isn't up to them to stop doing what they're doing. It's up to you to let go of it. Which is much easier said than done which is why Jesus says, pray for your enemy. Pray for your enemy. So we have, to, we have to kind of break this apart then and define what we mean when we say pray for your enemy. Or rather, I'd say, what is the end goal? Why? Jesus says, pray for your enemy. Why? What is the end goal? I tell you you should pray for your enemies. Why? Is it because it's a nice thing, or is it because maybe there's something more to the act of praying for your enemy? Okay, it gives you peace. Yes? How so? Okay. Yeah, you can't, you can't will somebody's good and will ill upon a person at the same time. And that's what I mean when I say you can't hate someone and pray for them at the same time. Because you, if you hate them, you want their ill. That's one facet of hate. I want, I want their ill. But if I'm going to pray for them, then, I want, then, I'm, then I'm loving them. And I'm doing a loving act for them. And I want their good. That's the whole reason that I'm praying for them. Now those two things are, conf there, there's a conflict there between what do I want? Do I want ill on them or do I want good for them? And if I'm going to pray for them, then you fall on the side of good, which means you can't want ill for them anymore. One of them will cancel the other one out. Now, that is kind of leading to the second point about praying for your neighbor. You're not praying for, for your enemy. You're not praying for your enemy only so that I can, I will pray for my enemy so that I can have peace. Now, that doesn't sound very Christ-like, does it? So the reality is that prayer for your enemy is an act of divine love. And you pray for your enemy because you want your enemy to repent and to receive the forgiveness and the love of God in the same way that you have. You want God's good to come to your enemy just like you want it to come to you. And why would you want that for an enemy? This is why, by the way, the world thinks that it is foolish to pray for your enemies. 
Christianity is very difficult. And, and here's one reason why. Look at the things that Jesus says. Look at the things that Jesus says. And then look at everything that Buddha says. And Buddha's, Buddha's going to be the whipping boy today. Okay? So look at Buddha. Well, have inner peace. Love people. Do some good things. Have some time of quiet and peace. All right. I mean, who doesn't do those things? <clears throat> Did Hitler love his mother? Even the, even the most wicked person in the world has somebody they love and care about and do good for. Let's be honest here. It's just so generic. But then Jesus comes along and Jesus says, yeah, 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 I mean, pray for everybody, but I want you especially to pray for all the people you hate. Oh, now, wait a minute. All of those people that are going to persecute you and put you to death, I want you to love them. Now, hold on just a second, Jesus. Everything that Jesus says is extreme. Christianity is extreme. And why is it extreme? Because it's otherworldly. Because it isn't the norm. Because that's not how we behave, Jesus. Don't you know? And Jesus says, I want you to rise above the norm. Or Dietrich Bonhoeffer uses the language of becoming the extraordinary. Don't be ordinary. That's Ordinary is love the people that love you and do good to the people that do good to you. Well, that's just the easiest thing in the world. It is so easy to love people who love you. It's so easy to love people who are behind you and who support you and sing your praise. It's so easy to do good to the people who are doing good to you. But that's not even playing the game. It's much more extreme and much more difficult to do the things that Jesus says. Why does Jesus say to do that? There, there is a source for it all. Why are you to love your enemy? Because, because God loves your enemy. You cannot love God. James says this. You cannot love God and also have an enemy. Because if you love God, then you love all the people that God has made. And if you hate your brother, then you do not love God. James also says, you know, if, you, if, he, if a man hates his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You can't do both. So if you love God then you also love your neighbor. That's the flow of the Ten Commandments. Table one, table two. I love God first, and then I love my neighbor. You can't love your neighbor without loving God, and you can't love your neighbor without first loving God. Because God is the one who changes you and works in you and makes it possible for you to love, because you're not doing it of your own accord, and you're not loving by your own standards, you're loving by God's standards, which is why the task of the Christian becomes extraordinary, because God is extraordinary. He is not ordinary. So when you look with your eyes, you are not to look at people the way that you see them. It's like the Garden of Eden. When I look at the tree, I sh I, what I want to see is what God has said about it. I will look at it and say, it is beautiful, uh, but it isn't for me quite yet. Instead of looking at it and seeing for myself that it is beautiful to the eye and good for fruit. You can see two ways. You can see the way that you see or you can see the way God sees. And if you love God, then he works on you and he changes you so that you start to see things the way that he does. And part of that is then praying for your enemies, willing their good even though you couldn't possibly fathom them having any kind of good for what they've done to you, but you do it anyway. And slowly, and, and this is to your point, Debbie, which is well said, 
that this isn't something that happens instantaneously. If, you're, if you come to your pastor and you say, well, boy, I hate so-and-so's guts, and pastor says, well, pray for them, what I'm not saying is sit down at, you know, before you have your breakfast coffee one day, say a quick prayer for them, and then all of a sudden, because you said that one prayer, everything's going to be hunky-dory, and you're never going to hate them or have a bad thought about them again for the rest of your life. If only the Christian life were that easy and that simple. That would be magic, though. And Christianity is not magic. So you pray repeatedly. Prayer is ongoing. It's never just a one-and-done completed act. The aspect of prayer is always continuous. When I say pray for your enemies, I say continue to pray for your enemies. Do it and keep doing it. If you say, I am praying for them, I say, great, keep it up. And if you say, well, I haven't, then I say, great, start and then keep going. And it might take you a lifetime, but when you pray for your enemies, they will slowly stop being your enemies. Now, I'm not saying that all of a sudden you'll start praying for them and, and then one moment you'll wake up and say, you know who I'd love to take out for brunch? Because you'll most likely never get there. But you will get to the point where you stop hating their guts and you actually stop, start willing their good. And you, and you get to the point where you start saying, you know, I do, when Christ comes again and raises us to glory and leads us to his kingdom, I would like to see so-and-so there. Which is not something you say. And if you get to that point, you say, you know, I would like to see so-and-so in the kingdom of God. Then praise be to God because that's, you know, truly flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven, because that is the love of God, is to look and say, this person destroyed my life, and you know what? I would like to see them in God's kingdom for no other reason than how good it would be for them. Bill, I, I haven't been ignoring you. I've just kind of been on this path. Yeah, I was kind of waiting for this. Um, scripture says, he first loved us. True. Yes. And so as we come to a realization of how bad we are, and then we come to that understanding. Before I can love other people, especially those that I might not hate, but I intentionally dislike. Uh, intentionally dislike is the same thing. <laughs> you know, I used to say, I don't say that I hate people, but I do strongly dislike. It's all, it's all the same thing, and, and there, there are no gradients. Either you love someone or you don't. That's what God says. There's no gradient. Now, we want to make a gradient. God says there isn't a gradient. Either you love or you don't. But before we can do that, we've got to come to the realization that we, may, that we are not worthy of the love that God is, has bestowed on us. Once sure. we understand what kind of low-down miserable this will be we are, then you, you say, well, if God loves me, then, then it's my desire then to overcome this dislike yeah. and, and, and love that person. Yeah. I thought of a, a guy who tormented me from first grade till, I don't know, he was probably 35 or 40 years old. Every time I saw him, we didn't get along, putting it mildly. He had a little problem in that after about four beers, he became very, very argumentative. Well, which of us doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> well, then one time in the bar, he became argumentative with the guy who was on leave from the Marine Corps. And that guy, and that guy one punched him, and that was the end of the tormenting. He, he killed him with one punch. Oh. And for a brief period of time, <laughs> I had a, mm, not the best of feelings because that, you know, he didn't deserve to die. And, I sh and for me to say, oh, hey, what right on, yeah. was terribly wrong. I'm sorry that he did that. I, and af after I, in time, thought about it, I, I truly regretted my initial reaction to that. Um, I'm sorry, but 
but it, when you go that intense dislike, that's a pretty good hurdle that you have to overcome. Mm -hmm. And you only do that through prayer with the help of God. Yeah, there's two quotes that I have, both of them from C.S. Lewis. First one, Lewis says, I share this in the catechumenate a lot. Lewis says, I go to the Eucharist to learn to love the people that I hate. You go and you put a little bit of Jesus inside of you, and Jesus works in you, and he, and this is the other thing I say in catechumenate, uh, when pastor comes and puts the host on your tongue, it's like a little atom bomb. Okay? Because what it's doing is, it's blasting sin. Every time it goes in, it's just, it's going in and it's raising hell, literally. And it's also, you know, we talk about the church as hospital because the body and blood of Christ is medicine, because it goes into you and it attacks all of the bad parts. All of the things that eat you up and kill you, it eats up and kills. Death doesn't swallow you, Jesus swallows death. You put Jesus inside of you, and Jesus goes to work. So, yes, prayer, you know, prayer is this work. Actually, all of today is about prayer. Rogation Sunday, rogo rogare, to pray. Um, so prayer, prayer is this work that you perform for others, but you are given the ability to do it by Christ. And you are given the ability to love as Christ by the love of Christ. You cannot love unless you are first loved. You don't even know what love is until you see what love is. And then when you see what love is, you realize that's the standard. This is what love is, and this is what it means. And therefore, I have these responsibilities. Now, Lewis also says this. He says, um, you are to forgive the unforgivable in others because God has forgiven the unforgivable in you. And, and there's another, I, th I think that this was, he, he wrote an, oh, I shared this in the newsletter. He wrote a, he wrote a little article called the, the Problem with X. If you haven't gotten the newsletter and read that, you should, there are some more back there, just pick it up and read it. But the whole article is how people look at other people and say, you know, that guy's real problem, and, or I tried to talk to him, but you know how he is. And, and, and you know, you hear that a lot in small communities like this one, like, oh, uh, I'm trying to think of a name that isn't gonna cause offense. Uh, you can't talk to a hype man. We'll say it like that. You can't talk to a hype man because you know how the hype men are, thick-headed, hard-headed, stubborn Germans. Can't do anything with them. Or like, you can't talk to an Olin Zalen. Uh, you, you know, say, or you can't talk to a right. Or you can't, you can't teach a, uh, I don't know, a heights anything. Or watch out for the heights temper. You know, whatever. Or, or them heights will never be on time their whole life. Or whatever, whatever you want to say, okay? You can say that all the time. Or those beermans, whatever. You know, I don't, <laughs> don't let them near the car. You know how those beermans are. Uh, <laughs> So you, know, you, can, you can say all of that stuff, but, but the point that Lewis makes is, yeah, but the problem is, if you're the one saying, oh, I can't tell a hype man anything, can't, don't, can't, let a, can't let a beerman drive the car, can't let a blah, 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 heights, but be in charge of whatever. You know, if, if, that's, if that's your position, then the problem is actually with you, because you are looking at everybody else from on top of a pedestal going, well, your problem is this, and your problem is this. And everybody else looks at you and says, well, you know what, your problem is, you're way up there. And uh, one of the lines that I think is great is he says, life is like a play, and the problem with you is you see every part of the play but your own. And God, it's really God's play, not yours, and God sees everybody, including you. And Therefore, when you are praying, yes, you're right, you, 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 when you are praying for your enemies, your prayers for your enemies come from that position of, ah, yes, the problem is not with X, the problem is with me. And so I pray to Christ that he would transform me, 
that he would give me the strength to pray for my enemies, because let's be real, that's not an easy thing to do. Of course it isn't. Jesus never asks anything of you that is easy. That's what everybody else asks of you. But then as you start to do that, and you keep coming, you keep receiving the word, you keep having Jesus, and then you keep going and doing the work of faith, which is prayer, then your enemies slowly cease to become your enemies because you slowly start to look at them the way God looks at them by prayer and you slowly start to love them, hopefully, someday, maybe, to the degree that God loves them too. Rhonda. Yes. This is what you said just now. Yeah. When mom passed, mm -hmm. there was someone that was a friend mm -hmm. of the family. Yes. And then something happened. And that person became an, I want to say, enemy. Sure. And it took me the longest time. You say, okay, that person's not my enemy. I pray for that person. But I still see that person, and I immediately go to, you did, mm, you know, like, oh, Lord, forgive me. I'm praying for that person. So the person goes from a friend to friend of the family, mm -hmm. I would say. Yep. To an enemy of the family, which we didn't want, but which happened, and nobody, no, nobody ever wants to make enemies. Right, but we're still we still pray for them. Mm hmm And I still every once in a while, it's like you know, sure you have to. So is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. I mean. Forgiveness is not forgetting. You'll never forget. That's the, this is, again, this is the beauty of God. God says, I will forget your sins. God knows everything. And he says he'll forget. And you, you don't know anything. And you can't forget. But it's one of the sweet ironies of life. Like, you might forget so many things. Believe you me. If it's not written down, it's gone. But you'll never forget the people that hurt you. Never. You will always remember that. You do, and that's part of all of this. Because what it means to forgive is not to forget, because you never will, but it is to live as if you had forgotten, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do. The amount of, <laughs> the amount of uh, sacrifice on your part that it takes to love that human being is frankly, from an earthly standpoint, not worth it. It is easier just to have an enemy and fight until you both die and then have whoever died last say, well, serves them all right. Have your, you know, your dying breath be cursing your enemies. That is so easy. And why do we keep doing it? Because if we're gonna be honest with one another, and this is Bible class. We can be honest with each other. It feels good. I want the guy who made my life miserable to get it. Serves him right. I want the guy who backstabbed me and made my life a living hell to see hell in this life himself, so that I can stand back and say, well, what do you know? Couldn't it happen to a better person? Because it feels good, it feels satisfying, but that's feeding it. That is actually taking a few steps down and roasting yourself 
in that hellfire and saying, boy, you know what? This isn't really as bad as Jesus said it was. <laughs> and every, every couple of minutes, the temperature goes click, and you don't know. It's poison. It kills you. This is, I've said this before, too, but hatred, having an enemy, it's drinking poison yourself but waiting for your enemy to die. Who's the only person that that's going to hurt? You! But you drink the poison and go, well, that'll show him. It's just the most idiotic thing in the world. But it's easy and it's natural. What is unnatural is forgiving, moving beyond whatever slight that was. And living as if that isn't the thing that has happened and certainly not letting that be the thing that defines how we live together. You'll never forget it but you can choose to move beyond it. You can choose to look the, on people the way that Jesus looks on them, or you can choose to keep looking at them the way that you want to. But Christ loves them. That's part of the small catechism from last week. Give us this day our daily bread. God certainly gives daily bread to all people, even without our prayers, including all evil people. And part of that petition is, excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, that we would be, that by God's grace, we would be led to realize that that's how God works and then to receive our own daily bread with thanksgiving. But to look and see, yeah, you know what? God actually does love everybody and, and maybe I shouldn't be hating people the way that I do. And the, the way to not hate people the way you do is to pray for them. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. The Didache says take a fast for the ones who harm you so that you are putting yourself second and you are putting God and the love of God first and God will work through your prayers not only for the person that you hate but also for you. And you can even pray, gotcha, uh, Lord, soften my heart and allow me to love the people that I hate. And then of course the Lord gives you an answer and says, I will. Come and get my body and my blood. Every little bit of that that goes into you is that little bit of help and transformation and furthering in your life to help you in doing that good work of praying for those whom you have made to be your enemies and loving them as I have loved them. Oh, I'm so sorry, Nancy. I've been reading something, I don't remember where it was. Uh huh. We should try not to become such a negative person. And if you take the word hate, strike it from your vocabulary, you're going to try to be a better person. Sure. Instead of hate, you say, I'm not very fond of that person. Ah. Or I'm not very fond of Brussels sprouts. <laughs> well, yeah, we were never allowed to say anything about hating food. I mean, we weren't, we weren't allowed to use the word hate. My, my mother taught us that if you say that you hate somebody, it means you want all of their children born dead. And then it makes you, when you, you can't ever unhear that. You hear that one time, and then the next time you're playing around, and you say, man, I hate you. Uh, then you think, oh, never mind. No, I don't. Okay, you, you just cannot unhear that. Um, but Jesus doesn't want you to say, I'm not very fond of, though. Because Jesus wants you to say, I love that person. I love that person. I love that person. I love that person. I want good for everybody. That's what Jesus, Jesus wants you to get over not being fond of people, and especially to get over uh, hating people and having enemies. I, I, don't know, I don't know if this is helping you at all, Marla. Uh, I don't know if this is satisfactory. I mean, it, you, you, will always, you will always have enemies. And it's, and it's not, this isn't me. This is, the apostles said this, not me. I'm just being a parrot right now. That you, you pray for people so that you don't have enemies. Uh, because when you pray for somebody, that gets rid of them as an enemy. So the thing is, though, it isn't instantaneous, and it, it may take an entire lifetime. In fact, you may be on your deathbed and still struggling with it, but the prayer is the, is the act of struggling with it, actually taking it up and praying for that person, despite every fiber of your being saying, don't you dare pray for them, don't you remember what they did to you? And you say, yes, of course I remember, how could I forget? But 
I will also pray for them. And you'd be surprised, you might not ever look at them and say, yeah, you know what, I've decided they're going to be my bosom buddy. But you might be surprised by how you think of them. You might think that they are still your enemy to a degree, and then the next time you see them, you think to yourself, wow, I didn't blow up at them the way I thought I was going to. That's, that's the healing of the, the enemy wound. So, okay. Yes. Certainly. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. All right. We'll see you at the altar.